Welcome back for episode 44 in our study of the book of Revelation. But first, just in time for the Come Follow Me lessons on Revelation, we announce that Breck's new book, The Bright and Morning Star, Finding and Following Jesus Through the Book of Revelation by Breck England is now available. Breck, tell us about the book. Well, like everybody else, um, Latter-day Saints struggle with reading the book of Revelation. It's common. But I've found that the temple is the key to understanding it. Uh, Just as we've been saying all along in our podcast series, uh, lots of our listeners have asked if there's going to be a book based on these podcasts, and we're happy to say yes. (laughs) I'm happy to say yes, too. (laughs) You can find the book easily on Amazon.com. Just type in the name Breck England or the title The Bright Morning Star and put in your order. It's available in paperback or on Kindle. Make sure to rate the book on Amazon and leave good reviews. This episode is called Encircled in the Arms of His Love. This is going to be really good. I'm Sam Bracken, your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who is teaching us about the book of Revelation by relating it to the Latter-day Saint temple experience. In our last episode, we viewed the last judgment. (laughs) In today's episode, we find out what happens to us once we are judged for the last time. I can't wait. (laughs) Yes, right. I think I could wait for a while. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Last time, we found ourselves in the heavenly temple facing the great white throne. Could you read for us uh, Revelation 20, verse 12? I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Right. And remember that in verse 15, he says that um, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, there are two lakes in the book of Revelation. They're sort of opposite. One of them is the crystal sea near God's throne, And the other is the lake of fire at the opposite end of the universe. In the the astrology of the ancient Greeks and Romans, the axis of the universe was supposed to pass from its northern zenith at the constellation Thronus, which we now call the, the Little Dipper, and it was passed down to the lowest point on the south. Now, the great and glorious seat, that is the white throne, is... um, at the North Star, and that's at the <clears throat> the top of the sky map. Okay, directly opposite is the mouth of the abyss, which is the the black hole at the bottom or the south end of the sky map. Okay, and that's where the lake of fire is found in John's scheme of things here. Oh wow! So depending on whether we choose to be redeemed or not we get to decide which lake we get to swim in. Oh, wow. 
Is there really a lake of fire where the wicked burn for eternity? Well, modern revelation tells us that the lake of fire is a metaphor, a symbol for the second death or eternal separation from God. It's a figure of speech. It's not literal. And for John, it's connected with astronomy, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, the lowest place on the winter horizon where the sun flames out every night. So it looked like uh, a lake of fire. Mm, got it. The terms spiritual death or second death or lake of fire and brimstone or outer darkness, uh, these are all synonyms. Okay, they all mean the same thing. Uh, Second Nephi 9.16 gives us to the tip off here. It says, the torment of the wicked is as a lake of fire and brimstone. Um, by the way, brimstone is, is burning sulfur. Mm. Um, it says as a lake of fire, okay? Not a real lake of fire. If I, if I were to say, for example, um, I feel today like I, that I look as a pumpkin looks, okay? <laughs> and I do. Um, that doesn't, I'm not telling you that I am a pumpkin, right? Right, okay. right. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a symbol. The lake of fire is a symbol. If the wicked had repented, Mormon 5.11 said, I think this is very, very crucial. If the wicked had repented, quote, they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus, unquote. Instead, they're going to be locked in the arms of Satan. As Alma says, um, quote, encircled about by the chains of hell and sealed to the destroyer of their souls. That's in Alma 5.7. How would you like to be sealed to Satan? No bueno. No, that's, that's, that sounds like a burning hell to me. Yeah, that would be bad. So why have we always assumed that there would be a real lake of fire and brimstone? And what's brimstone anyway? Well, we, <laughs> we think brimstone was a kind of flammable pitch or, or burning sulfur. If you've been to Yellowstone. Oh, yes, I love it there. And sniffed one of the mud pots. Yes, I have. Okay, then you, you, you know what sulfur gas smells yeah, like. Yeah, it's not, not, kind yeah, of, okay, not nice. Well, not no, nice. Okay. <laughs> it's a putrid smell. Yes, well, that's, that's another metaphor, brimstone. It's a oh, metaphor God. for the putridness of, of, of evil. Mm. Right? Now, from ancient times... A lake of fire has symbolized the fate of the wicked. The Egyptians believed that lakes of fire await the soul of the deceased if he fails to speak certain key phrases that enable him to pass through certain gates onto heaven. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Okay, That is interesting. Remember, the Egyptians believed that the soul had to be judged at the veil, right? Mm -hmm. Of the god Osiris. If you fail to pass the veil... And, according, and, the, and the Egyptians said this. It meant dying a second time. So that was the second death, right? Right. And, and, and it meant being lost in a lake of fire. It's a very ancient image, this lake of fire. But modern revelation tells us that it was not literal. It's, this kind of punishment is as a lake of fire. Okay. Have you 
ever felt really guilty about something, um, maybe about hurting somebody or doing the wrong thing, what does it feel like? What does it do to your conscience? Yeah, I've, I've, I've reflected um, on some serious things that I've done wrong in my life, and it eats away at me, you know. It eats away at me badly. And these days, you know, I've tried to get rid of most of it, but um, I'm still haunted by the, the horrors that I they put my little brother through. <laughs> when we were growing oh, up. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I just uh, tortured the poor guy. Yeah, and, my... and it still bugs me to this day. Mm. But um, anyway, but so on a serious note, I, you know, uh, those things eat at you. And um, it seems like you never can escape them. And I actually have to really focus and pray and, and give it to Jesus for him to accept and um, to deal with and then repent and, you know, obviously never to repeat those kinds of things again, but it's, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. So who exactly ends up in the lake of fire? Revelation chapter 21, uh, verse eight tells us who ends up in the lake of fire. Quote, the cowardly, the faithless, the morally polluted, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Mm. Uh, by the way, that's from the uh, uh, New Standard Revised Version of the Bible, which I, I really like. It's, it's, to me, it's a little easier to understand than, than the King James. So uh, anyway, th they will suffer this burning conscience. Have you ever felt like you had a burning conscience? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Me too. They'll suffer this burning feeling that we talked about, but they'll also burn with regret, right? Mm -hmm. Psalm 69 tells us what their real punishment is. Quote, Their habitation will be desolate. None will dwell in their tents. That's Psalm 69, 25, 28. None will dwell in their tents. What do you think that means? That they'll be alone in their suffering. Right. I can't think of a worse fate. Yeah. They'll have no family. Right. Nobody in the tent. Nobody, right. no habit, their habitation will be desolate. Yeah, no loved ones. Um, yeah. No one will dwell in their tents. That is, they will be alone. Cut off from the family of God, incapable of increase or progression. They, they will not abound, which is the Doctrine and Covenants' term for, for eternal life. They, they cannot abound. That word is found in DNC 8850. It's a word I really like. These people, these unfortunates, are the stars that fall from heaven. Okay? Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 29, that when the judgment comes, the stars shall fall from heaven. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you look up and see everything falling down on us. What you, what, it's, a, it's a grim metaphor, okay, for the fall of the wicked to the lowest point of creation, right? right. That is the lake of fire. And that's in Revelation 20, verse 10. There is a book called the Book of First Enoch, which is one of those uh, recently discovered apocryphal books. In the Book of First Enoch, it says, quote, 
These stars received their judgment and were found guilty, and they were thrown into an abyss full of fire and flame. There, the fallen stars are imprisoned. These are not the uh, stars that we see at night. These are symbolic stars, the stars that are our brothers and sisters who have decided and chosen to fall. They, they made that choice. Do you remember in the primal council in heaven when it says the, the morning stars sang together? Well, that's a reference to the children of God who were excited about the plan, right? Mm-hmm. But these stars are the, the lost stars. So when it says the stars fall from heaven, it refers to wicked people, not actual stars. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. The book of Second Enoch, it's another, another apocryphal book, describes the second death in really um, awful terms. Enoch has a vision of a very frightful place of every kind of torture and torment. Here there is no light, but a black fire blazes up perpetually. That's an interesting symbol, a black fire. Can you? Again, I can't visualize that. That's really crazy. This this punishment is for the breakers of sacred covenants, according to Second Enoch. Okay, uh, who quote untie the yoke or the bond that was secured. Now that means they they break their covenant. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Enoch says quote if any should retract his vows, there is no repentance for him. Unquote. So if you break your covenants and turn away from them and fail to repent, there's really no forgiveness because you don't ask for it. Right? Enoch says that this hell is for those who, quote, now this is really interesting to me, who enrich themselves by fraud from the possessions of others, who bring about the death of the hungry by starvation and take away the last garment of the naked. In other words, people who go to hell are people who have been hard on the poor and the vulnerable. Mm. So the Lord lets Enoch see this awful place. Then he, quote, straightway shuts up the vision, and then he mourns over these people with Enoch. And this is in, um, in the Pearl of Great Price, in the book of Moses, chapter 7, verse 37. Quote, the whole heavens shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer? Our Father doesn't gloat, okay, over the fate of the wicked. He, he doesn't gloat as some of us would, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are those of us who would be very happy to see certain people you know, <laughs> in hell, but... Um, and I'm afraid that I may be one of them, okay? <laughs> but uh, he doesn't. Father doesn't gloat. He's not, he weeps over the punishment in store for the wicked. Now, Enoch is so distressed at the thought of such deep suffering, he says, this is Moses chapter 7, I will refuse to be comforted. But the Lord said unto Enoch, Lift up your heart and be glad, and look. He's going to see a different scene now. Joseph Smith, Matthew 1 and 4 says, quote, the destruction of the wicked is the end of the world that we know. And now the scene changes to a new celestialized earth. Now again, this is very, very crucial. This is the whole center of the book of Revelation in my view. Okay. 
at the veil, the Savior, quote, encircles us about in the arms of his love. Those he has redeemed. That's in 2 Nephi 1.15. So, while the unrepentant are circled about by the chains of hell, the repentant souls experience a totally different kind of encirclement. The Savior's arms of mercy wrap around those people. And the Savior's arm of mercy symbolizes his power to make it all better, to make it all right, to atone for our sins. He embraces us who repent, redeemed souls, in the arms of his mercy. Okay? That, I think, is the whole gospel right there, to be encircled about in the arms of his love. Notice the opposite, to be encircled about in the arms or the chains of Satan. So this, this contrast is so stark to me. Who, who do you want to be hugged by? Right. That's the whole gospel right there. Do you want to be encircled by Satan or the yeah. Savior? Who's, who, who's, whose grasp do you want to be yeah. caught in? Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the prodigal son. Right. Where the, the father runs out to grasp his uh, son, who is, of course, a fool, right? <laughs> yeah, he made a lot of mistakes. And, uh, but the son repents. So. Which wasn't a mistake. No, which was the only smart thing he ever did. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to me um, that in ancient Near Eastern temples and their rituals, the embrace of the God transmitted immortality and divinity. And this wasn't just in the, in the Israelite world. This was in the entire Middle East. The, the Egyptian ritual in the Egyptian temple culminates when, quote, the creator himself embraces the candidate and takes him to his heart. The god Amun, or as our scriptures call him, Amun, is the embracer who opens the doors of heaven. Have you been to Egypt? No, I haven't been to Egypt. Yeah. I've been close. But yeah. not. Well, in the, in the great temple of Amun in Luxor, which is uh, quite a ways down the Nile River from Cairo, there's this great, huge, ancient temple that goes back about, well, possibly near the time of Moses, a little bit after. There you will see uh, images of the god Amun embracing the souls who come to him. It's quite striking. I have taken photos of it, and it's remarkable to see the god embracing, the god Amun, who represents the, the father of heaven and earth, embracing the souls who come to him. Now, the Greek word for this ritual of embracing was, uh, the Greek word was proskinesis, which means a kiss or a kissing gesture. Proskinesis is the ritual embrace of God in his temple. Now, in early Christian ritual, an embrace followed the prayer circle as a, quote, seal of prayer. It signaled a familial tie, a token of belonging. This is from a, a very interesting book by a man named Michael Philip Penn, who is a scholar in Philadelphia. He wrote a book called Kissing Christians, <laughs> Ritual and Community in the Late Ancient Church. 
Now, uh, in this book, he talks about the meaning of proskinesis. It meant embraced by God. And in some of the Gnostic literature, in, in the Gospel of Truth, it's an ancient... Uh, it's, a, it's a book that was literally dug up out of the desert in Egypt not too long ago. And it's very, very ancient. Very early Christian book. And in the Gospel of Truth, it says that souls rise up through all heights to the Father and embrace his head, which is rest for them. And they hold him close. Isn't that a wonderful expression? It is. It goes on to say that such exalted persons who get to embrace the Father are predestined to save others, thereby actualizing their identities as saved saviors. Wow. So they're embraced by their father, by the father, and then they turn to become saviors of others. So they're saviors yeah. on Mount Zion, yeah, temple very, workers. Yeah, very okay. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now, Jesus, in the uh, Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, quote, The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I want to point something out here, that, that the word that Jesus uses in the New Testament for worship, proskinesis, originally meant to embrace. Oh, wow. That's what true worship is. It's embracing Father. It's embracing yeah. Father. That's yeah. worship. Wow. We think, when we hear the word worship, what do we think of? Bowing down. Bowing down, right. groveling in the dirt. Right, know, right. Um, uh, here's this great and glorious being, and we are nothing. You know, we're worms compared to him, and so we get down on our knees and we grovel, and wow. we, we feel like we feel like nothing. Well, uh, that works too. But um, <laughs> I, I really, I really like this yeah. visually. <laughs> to me, yeah. it changes things for me. What, what does the what does it mean to worship? And worship is a is an English word. It's uh, related to the word worthy, but it's not a very good translation of the Greek term, proskinesis, which literally meant to come forward and kiss. To the ancient Christians, to the earliest Christians, worship did not mean what it means to us today, at least the common meaning of worship. You know, this, this changes uh, this changes everything for me. <clears throat> Just listening to the General Conference, and about when when President Nelson talks about worship, mm -hmm. like we should worship the Father, and right. and um, now now I have a whole completely different yeah. window that is open in yeah. my soul about this. And, and, and you'll notice that it's only in the temple that we truly worship the Father. Right, right. That makes so much Isn't sense. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's powerful. To me, that to me that's very powerful. Yeah, and it's kind of sums up the whole gospel. Right. Right. To, to, to the world, the word worship means something quite different than what it means in the temple because temple worship literally means to embrace the Father. Yeah, yeah hug Father and, and follow yeah. Jesus. So. Um, going to the veil becomes an entirely different experience once you understand what that means. Uh, so the word we translate as worship, originally the word that Jesus used in the New Testament meant to embrace. Mm. It was translated into the Latin Bible as the word adorare. Adorare literally means to the mouth. <laughs> mm. Interesting. Ad meaning to, mm -hmm. and in uh, Latin, ora meant the mouth. So adorare means to the mouth. Okay, 
And you know what? That that word adorare comes into English as the word adore. Adore. Yeah, yeah. Makes, okay. That makes okay. a lot of sense. Yeah. So it means to kiss or to embrace. Uh, okay. Very cool. This image is throughout our scriptures, but people don't tend to notice it. Alma thirty four sixteen says, quote, Mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of his safety. This image of being encircled in the arms of God is throughout the Book of Mormon. And it's a precious image to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that moment in the temple when we are encircled in the arms of his safety is the very definition of true worship. So, what's the purpose of the temple? It's to bring us all to be embraced by our Father, and once again, enter his kingdom. That's the aim and objective of all our temple worship. In the temple, priests and priestesses bring to the veil the repentant souls, whether they're dead or alive, right, who are, quote, encircled about with everlasting darkness and destruction because of their sins, right? Mm -hmm. And they introduce them into, quote, everlasting salvation, to be encircled about with the matchless bounty of his love. That is in Alma 26, 15. It is a beautiful thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, when, the next time you read the Book of Mormon next year, or whenever you do it. I've, I've just got a head start on it. I'm yeah. doing it right now. Cool. <laughs> yeah. um, watch for this image. You will run across it over and over again. This image of being... Uh, encircled about right in the arms of his love it's everywhere in the book of mormon i love that it is a beautiful thing to be in the embrace of our father in heaven absolutely that is what real worship is right okay now in revelation 19 4 the priests and all the saints in the heavenly temple offer this proskinesis this worship to god on his throne in the holy of holies uh, the veil, you know, in the ancient temple separated the holy place from the holy of holies, okay? In other words, this is all symbolic of the terrestrial world being separated from the celestial, right? So, to give proskinesis to God, we must approach the veil, right? Mm-hmm. At the veil, we learn the, quote, hidden mysteries, unquote, which literally means ordinance, okay, the hidden ordinances. In other words, the confidential sacred ordinances necessary to attaining exaltation. In the heavenly temple, says Enoch, quote, my spirit passed out of sight and ascended into the heavens. And the angel Michael, one of the archangels, seized me by my right hand, lifted me up, and led me out into all the secrets of mercy, all the secrets of the extreme ends of heaven, of the stars and the luminaries. So the right hand, that that really seems important. Yes, extending the arm of mercy, okay? That's what that hand signifies. In the temple, extending the arm of mercy, right? The Mm -hmm. Lord brings the faithful by the right hand through the veil into the celestial glory. The angel who guides Enoch in the book of Enoch into the divine presence says this, quote, come, 
and I will show you the right hand of the omnipresent one. And he goes on to say, I have seen the right hand of the Lord beckoning me, who fills heaven. So does Abraham in the apocryphal um, book called The Apocalypse of Abraham. He says, quote, Jehovah took me by my right hand and stood me on my feet. And in another um, ancient apocryphal book called The Secret Book of James, when he ascends, Jesus met with the apostles, quote, he gave us his right hand and promised all of us life. And then the apostles, at that moment, they saw a vision of the immense human family that was to be redeemed through their service. Quote, he showed us children coming after us and commanded us to love them since we are to be saved for their sake. Unquote. So we are, we are saved so we can be saviors to them. Right? The whole journey through mortality and through the book of Revelation is to bring us to this moment of unveiling. And, and by the way, what was the Greek word for unveiling? Apocalypse. Apocalypse, yeah, right, yeah, which yeah. is the name of the book of Revelation, okay, in Greek. Yeah, yeah. Apocalypse is the title of the book. Yeah, yeah. So wait a minute, um, the original title of the book of Revelation was Apocalypse. The word apocalypse means unveiling, right? Yeah, yes, the word apocalypse literally means opening of a veil. Okay. Uh, this, this is Margaret Barker, um, a non-LDS scholar, who, by the way, I think is very, very close to the truth. She says, quote, Beyond the curtain in the temple was the heavenly world and the throne of God. This was the whole subject of the vision of John the Apocalyptist, she calls it. So this is the whole point of the book, to bring us to this point. And it's also the whole point of the temple. To bring us to the loving arms of God. Right. When, when Christ introduced John into, into the Revelation, right, at, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, back in chapter 1, what did he say? He says, he laid his right hand upon me and brought him to this parting of the veil. Okay. Doctrine and Covenant 76 that great vision of the afterlife. Verse 39, he says, quote, All the rest who aren't thrown into the lake of fire shall be brought forth by the resurrection of the dead through the triumph and glory of the Lamb. Unquote. The, the, the rest, and that is who aren't thrown into the lake, are, are apparently the majority of our Father's children. There is a talk given by Hebrews C. Kimball back in the... Um, early days of the church, he said, quote, I believe the greater part of the inhabitants of the earth will be redeemed. Yea, all will be finally redeemed, except those who have sinned against the Holy Ghost or shed innocent blood. So nearly all of us will go into some kingdom of glory. Yes, and, and the earth becomes celestialized. Sort of like a worldwide celestial room. Okay? <laughs> That's cool. A place of peace beauty and the light of Christ. My favorite French theologian says, quote, it is only after the totality of the judgment, after all and each will have passed through the fire of trial and temptation, that the universalization of the temple will be possible. In other words, the new creation, unquote. He's, he's a very smart guy. Now, we wouldn't appreciate this, would we, if we hadn't gone through the tribulation of a telestial world? 
remember the prodigal son if, if he hadn't sat in the pigsty with 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 the swine trying to fight the pigs for their food right, right. which is kind of a metaphor for our lives <laughs> okay yeah, here we are, here we are in the pigsty trying to fight the pigs for some deed right if we hadn't gone through all of that would we appreciate what it meant to go home to father probably not the mortal journey prepares us for that moment it prepares us to go through the veil to meet father to have him embrace us and to receive the blessing of, quote, the exaltation and continuation of the lives that we read about in Doctrine and Covenants 132. I think of it as a never-ending blossoming of eternal love. You know, I, I think I, I realized today from our session why love's the most powerful force. I agree. It draws us, right? Our Father's arms. Think of the image Think of what true worship means. Think of what it means to get out of the pigsty. And right, and into his arms. And go home Yeah, to our Father. So, in our next episode, we will be introduced into this worldwide celestial room, which John calls the New Jerusalem. Boy, I'm excited about that one.